Fighting is a sport, yes, but it's also a fight, and, well, we've been fighting for tens of thousands of years. Pretty sure there's a cave wall painting of an octagon and fans screaming at the Neanderthal version of Yamasaki stopping a fight too early. That being said, the sport has definitely evolved since then, several times, in fact, to its final form, Triller Triad Combat. Sorry, I couldn't resist. I mean, the sport we know and love today called Mixed Martial Arts. But how did we get here? Where did the origins of the actual sporting version of no-holds-bar fighting begin? Well, sit back, grab your beverage of choice, because today we're going on a historical martial arts journey. I'm Balian from MMA on Point, and boom, Jocko is back. Guns are blazing and slinging that all-natural energy boost. So you get your 10% off using the exclusive code MMA on Point, and with that subscription, you get free shipping, and you can stock up on your fuel over at jockofuel.com. It's the ultimate pre-workout boost. Anyways, more on that later, but for now, let's travel through the 10 most prominent eras of MMA. Number 10. Maeda and the Gracies I suppose it's best to start at the beginning, as with any chronicle. Like most martial arts, the key is in the name, martial. And that's where jiu-jitsu originally came from, the battlefields of Japan, where samurais abandoned striking techniques that didn't really work that well when you're in heavy armor and the other dude might have a sword, and started to implement trips, throws, and joint locks as their last line of defense. Over the many hundreds of years, this developed into multiple styles and schools, but where our story starts is in 1882 with Jigoro Kano, a student of traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu and the school he founded, the Kodokan. What he taught there eventually became known as judo, the martial art we recognize today, and it had an emphasis on live sparring instead of drilling with takedowns, chokes, and joint locks. One of Kano's students, Mitsuyo Maeda, was smaller than most, but still made effective use of the martial art, along with traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu. Because he was a smaller man, though, he concentrated and excelled at ground fighting, or niwaza, as they called it. He traveled the world to the United Kingdom, America, and eventually Brazil to demonstrate judo and Kano's teachings. It was here in 1914 he met business partner Gustav Gracie and his 14-year-old son Carlos, who saw a demonstration by Maeda at the Dapaz Theatre and decided to take up the martial art. He studied for many years, eventually sharing his knowledge with his brothers, including Elio, who as a small man himself and had trouble executing a lot of the judo techniques, so he began refining them into an art that could be utilized by anyone regardless of size or strength, and it was from here that Brazilian jiu-jitsu was born. All that was left now was just to prove how good it was. Number 9. Vale Tudo like any good promotion, the tale of Valet Sudo is shrouded in controversy, Wild West-like regulation, and a die-hard, bloodthirsty fan base. Its origins began deep in the heart of Brazil. The term Valet Tudo in Portuguese essentially means anything goes. Yeah, kicks the ground at opponents, headbutts, bare knuckle, it is the definition of old-school MMA. But as far back as the samurai days, they had been competing in anything goes jiu-jitsu contests, and Carlos Gracie wanted to bring that spirit to Brazil and show people, yeah, jiu-jitsu, it was the shit. And he also wanted it to be the, the most intense combat. No gloves. No time limits. No holes. And it wasn't about money in those days. It was about representing your martial art bare-knuckled and bloody with no restrictions of technique or bells to signify the end of a round. Understandably, there were tons of serious injuries which resulted in some bad press, but between the natural desire to want to see some fist fights and the loyal fan bases created by the different martial arts being represented, it rose in popularity. By 1920, there were different martial arts gyms all over the country and Brazilian circus promoters put on events where different styles would clash to see who was the best. Sounds familiar, right? In 1931, a legendary matchup took place between Catra wrestler Rufino Dos Santos and Carlos Gracie. The Gracie stipulations included Dos Santos wore a suit because that's what he walked around in, while Carlos wore his gi. Seems fair. And the full story behind this fight is worth checking out, but Dos Santos came out on top after Carlos left the ring under controversy. Dos Santos went on to train Euclides Hartem, who became a legend in his own right, founding Luta Livre, a submission wrestling art that spread among the Brazilian people, becoming a direct competitor to the Gracie's BJJ schools. In fact, in 1940, Euclides took on George Gracie and submitted him with an Americana, or a key lock, maybe 
in those days. Their rivalry continued right up until the early 90s. BJJ didn't use leg locks and Luta Livre did. They also didn't use geese and BJJ did, which really became a status symbol of wealth more than anything. Just lots to fight about there, but the idea of mixed martial arts and proving yours to be the best had only just begun. Number eight, shoot fighting. Meanwhile, in Japan, Much like Valet Tudo, shoot fighting was born out of hybrid martial arts. It combined catch wrestling, submission grappling, and kenpo. I guess it kind of all began with Carl Gotch, who later became known as the God of Wrestling because of his influence in Japan. Gotch learned his craft from the world-famous Snake Pit in Wigan, England, of all places, and after a stint in pro wrestling and winning the WWWF Tag Team Championship in 1971, he began to travel the world teaching what he knew. By 1960, he'd made his way to Japan and became very popular, showcasing his amateur wrestling style and teaching several Japanese fighters a very specific set of moves that became known as hook and shoot. Antonio Inoki was one of his students and we all know what he went on to do. Challenge Muhammad Ali to one of the first ever high profile MMA bouts, but that's a story for another time. Or if you do have time, check out this video from our archives by the legend Tom Ransom. The point is Inoki took what he learned and began hosting a series of matches against other martial artists to prove the legitimacy of the skill set. And yes, some of these were worked or fixed, but it led to an increased interest in what was actually effective in a fight. Eventually, several pro wrestling organizations started organizing shoot bouts, which turned out to be pretty legitimate mixed martial arts fights. The only problem was they were still having work fights as well, so things got a little confusing. Inoki passed these skills on in the dojo of his new wrestling promotion, New Japan Pro Wrestling. This continued and in 1984, the Universal Wrestling Federation was founded. Its main focus, to promote a realistic style of wrestling using shoot combat. Eventually, this would morph into rings, pancrase, and of course, Number seven, Shuto. Let's flash forward to 1985. Yeah, Commando just came out, and now we all know for sure that combat is much more about dropping the best one-liner possible on your opponent rather than showing how good your actual fighting skills are. Well, Shuto wanted to prove otherwise. They formed in 1985, and it's considered to be one of the first actual MMA organizations. It was derived from the popularity of shoot wrestling, but really it had all aspects of fighting with plenty of striking arts being featured as well. We have Tiger Mask Satoru Sayama to thank for the founding of this great promotion. He was a pro wrestler who had trained in shoot wrestling and wanted to create a sport that was basically fighting in the most realistic way possible. He learned his skill set under Inoki, but his style had developed along with others and with the influences of judo, kickboxing, muay thai, and even sambo. Compared to other popular promotions like New Japan Pro Wrestling and the Universal Wrestling Federation, it intended to have no predetermined rule sets and their first event took place in 1986. The fighters wore shin guards and headgear but fought bare knuckle with a full range of MMA techniques available to them. In Satoru's own translated words, he said, shooting is a sport in which one competes the results of training to one heart's content within the bounds of set rules, order, and courtesy. Sounds friendly enough. A far cry from the Valley Tudo rings of Brazil and the Just Bleed fans of the early UFC. The original document published by Satoru has been uploaded to MMA community forums and in it he lists the rules, the reasons behind the sport, and all the martial arts involved and, yeah, there are many. Supposedly it was also supposed to have a giant octagon ring and everyone was supposed to be wearing masks but by 1989 they created a professional version of the sport and it continued to 2020 but something else entirely was going on on the other side of the world. Number 6. BJJ vs Luta Livre We've already briefly discussed the wars that occurred in the gym stemming from the rivalry between the evolved Brazilian catch wrestling art Lucha Livre and the modified Japanese Jiu-Jitsu BJJ. But it went far beyond just that and it wasn't just between those two. Muay Thai schools were involved as well and it continued for many years and by the early 90s these fights started to gain enough attention to be televised. The rivalry had reached a boiling point after Hicks and Gracie challenged Lucha Livre star Hugo Duarte at Pepe Beach in 1988. I say challenged, he basically just walked up to him, slapped him and they started fighting. Hickson pretty much dominated him so 
Hugo and around 60 other Luta Livre fighters tooled up and stormed the Gracie Academy. And when I say tooled up, I mean knives, machine guns, everything. They were met by a 76-year-old Elio Gracie who somehow defused the situation and Hicks and Hugo had a rematch in the car park. There were no excuses this time and Hickson won, but the rivalry was still heating up. Then in April 1991, the Rio de Janeiro newspaper reported, according to Walid Ishmael, who was a brown belt at the time, but actually went on to beat Henzo and choke Hoist unconscious, he basically told the paper Luta Livre was just a bad copy of Jiu-Jitsu, and boy, did they not like that. A crew of Luta Livre fighters invaded the Copa Nostra, organized by the Gracies. Hell was once again about to break loose, but Carlson Gracie controlled the situation like his uncle Ilio had done before him, and to settle the agreement, they arranged to do battle in one of the most epic events in no-holds-barred history. Desafio Jiu-Jitsu versus Luta Livre 1991. The challenge generated interest from Red A Globo, a major TV company in Brazil who agreed to televise the event and some of you will recognize some of the fighters that took part, Walid Ishmael, Hugo Duarte and also future UFC champions Marco Huas and Murillo Bustamante. Well actually Huas missed the fight so there were just three fights televised but this was live MMA, not street fighting. The combatants were using technique and skill to defeat one another and the Jiu-Jitsu guys won all three of their matches which led to a major boost in its popularity. Number 5. The Gracie Challenges Now, as far back as the 1920s, the Gracies were issuing challenges to other martial arts practitioners. Carlos and Elio beat up many boxers, karate guys, and judokas in an effort to prove jiu-jitsu, which you should already know by now at this point in the video. But that was always in Brazil, and it was Horian and his younger brothers that migrated to Southern California in 1978, where his intention was to spread the BJJ culture, and he set up mats and a gym in the now-famous Gracie Garage. It didn't take long, and he had a solid number of students, and even started to work as an extra in television in film. And in 85, he invited his brother Hoist to move to the US with him. By 1987, they were already working with actors like Mel Gibson on the set of Lethal Weapon to help choreograph fight scenes. Like his uncle Carlos had done before him, Horian started to issue the Gracie Challenge in the US to pretty much anyone that would take it. And as usual, there were no time limits, no gloves, and no referee. Soon enough, Horian started recording these matches and he apparently beat everyone. The combined recordings were released and became the Gracie in action videotape series, which brought some serious attention to their martial art and the Gracie family. By 1989, with Hoist, Hicks, and Hoyler, Horian opened their first Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Torrance, California. He continued to work in film until he met Art Davey in 1993, and MMA as we knew it would change forever. Number 4. The Pioneer and Pancrase Era Meanwhile in Japan... <laughs> No, not that. I'm talking about the collapse of the aforementioned Universal Wrestling Federation. You know, one of those Japanese pro wrestling organizations that started to incorporate shoot fighting, but ultimately after six years of operation was on its last legs. But it still had several stars walk for its doors, including Ken Shamrock, but we'll get onto him in a minute. Anyway, in 1993, Masakatsu Funaki, Minoru Suzuki, Takaku Fuke, and Ken Shamrock left UWF and, as suggested by Carl Gotch, formed Pancrase, an organization that would focus on pure shoot-style wrestling with limited gimmicks and, of course, no predetermined outcomes. By September, they held their first event at the Tokyo Bay Hall, and it was a smashing success, with every fight ending by either KO or submission. Pancrase allowed rope breaks, kicks, but no closed fist strikes, and evolved into a legit and premier MMA organization. The first king of Pancrase was Ken Shamrock. He fought on the first show against Funaki in September, and by December of the following year, had already racked up a 14-3 and record with wins over Baz Rutten and Matt Hume. He fought Manabu Yamada in the final of a two-day Grand Prix tournament. It went the full 30-minute time limit, and he became the first king of Pancrase. 
Pancrase. But meanwhile, back in the US, the popularity and success of the Gracie Challenge series and Horian's relationship with Art Davey had led to the creation of the Ultimate Fighting Championship, a one-night tournament where different martial artists would compete against each other to discover which one was superior. Obviously, the Gracies believed their BJJ was the best in the world, and yeah, they were pretty much right. They sent in Hoist to compete as he was the smallest and least intimidating, and he beat everyone, winning UFC 1, 2, and 4, forever cementing the legacy of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Ken, meanwhile, had already fought Hoist at UFC 1 and was defeated in just under one minute, but since then he'd been conquering in Pancrase and was of course the king, so for UFC 5 they did something a little different. Instead of having them compete in the tournament, Ken fought Hoist for the first ever UFC Super Fight Championship. After 36 minutes, it was a draw, and to be honest, it wasn't all that entertaining, but after UFC 4 went over the time limit and the pay-per-view was cut off, they needed a solution. Horian, though, had never wanted time limits, and UFC 5 would be the last time the Gracies were involved, the sport was evolving, and the UFC was just getting started. Number 3. MMA Regulation Begins so people like watching fighting, especially when it was advertised as two men enter, one man leaves as everyone's dreams of blood sport in the movie were finally coming to life. It was this kind of advertising though that actually propelled the sport forward in its early years, especially when it came to VHS sales that were treated like prohibition moonshine. After UFC 5, it was open season on rule sets and they experimented with a few variations until UFC 9 where they completely did away with the tournament format in favor of pre-scheduled bouts. But in the lead up to this event, it was Arizona Senator John McCain who came forward declaring the UFC a brutal spectacle and the famous line, human cockfight. A legal battle ensued and UFC 9 was allowed to go ahead but with no closed fists and no headbutts. Of course, the fighters didn't really pay attention to this, but shots had been fired. After UFC 9, though, things actually got a lot worse, eventually leading to the UFC being pulled from pay-per-view broadcasts as well as a number of cable systems. Basically, they were dead in the water and the UFC was banned in as many as 36 states. So they had to do something and began to implement some more rules, taking a note from boxing, which was a rule set a lot of commissions recognized. They introduced a 10-point must-scoring system along with weight classes, time limits, and rounds. They now had MMA gloves, got rid of headbutts and elbows to the back of the head, and kicks to a down fighter. Okay, so now we're starting to see something that pretty much represents the sport we have today. So things carried on and the UFC kept putting on events, but it wasn't enough. The owners, SEG, were on the verge of bankruptcy, feud states were sanctioned, and pay-per-view had pretty much dried up. But Dana White convinced Lorenzo and Frank Fatita to buy the company, and so they did for $2 million, and Zufa were now the owners of the UFC. Then, just one year later, the New Jersey Athletic Commission held a meeting to discuss the regulation of MMA. They drew up the unified rules of MMA, and although they've changed a bit, these are the rules we use and follow today. Even John McCain changed his tune, saying the sport had finally grown up. Number 2. Pride so over in the US, the UFC had been on the rise. Yes, there had been problems, but Japanese promoters had taken note of this and the prominence of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. In 1994 and 1995, Valley Chudo Japan had organized some tournaments and the winner had been Hickson Gracie. So Pride Championships were formed to pitch Hickson against Japanese pro wrestler Nobuhiko Takada. The first event took place at the Tokyo Dome on October 11th, 1997, and they pulled in over 47,000 fans and a ton of attention from Japanese media. They also got K1 involved, which had grown in popularity with their champion Branko Sakatic fighting on the card, as well as Henzo Gracie, Oleg Taktarov, Gary Goodridge, Kimo Leopoldo, and Dan Seven. Hickson beat Takada in five minutes with an armbar, and Pride was born. It was such a success, they were able to start organizing a regular series of events, and they even held a rematch between Gracie and Takada the following year. They secured a Fuji television deal and a pay-per-view contract with Sky Perfect TV. By the fourth event, Dreamstage Entertainment took over, and that's when the promotion was officially named Pride Fighting Championships. They began hosting Grand Prix tournaments, were able to get a ton of US stars to come over, because, well, they just paid more money 
money, eventually the promotion gave birth to their own legends, such as Big Nog, Vandalay Silva, Sakuraba, Krokop, and Fedor, and they began to string together just undeniable performances. Their rule set, setting, and just overall production set them apart from the UFC and from the unified rules of MMA, and it was enough to create their own dedicated hardcore fan base, one that continues to exist to this day despite the promotion folding and eventually being bought out by the UFC in 2007. Number 1. The Modern Era after regulation and weight classes became a part of the sport, slowly but surely things began to build traction. The only problem was pay-per-view needed stars to get it off the ground. Yeah, they managed to regulate the sport and get it back out there, but they couldn't seem to pass the 50,000 buy mark. It was a money pit that they kept throwing cash into. It couldn't last forever. But they caught a break in 2002 when Fox Sports aired the first MMA fight ever on cable TV, Chuck Liddell vs. Vitor Belfort at UFC 37.5. Fox even went on to start showing reruns of the old UFC fights, but the show that really saved the day was UFC 40 at the MGM Grand, the first rivalry the sport had ever really manifested between Tito Ortiz and Ken Shamrock's gym, The Lion's Den. UFC 40 was the grudge match showdown fans had waited for, and it was the first time they ever broke their record selling 150,000 pay-per-views. It pretty much saved the organization and categorically proved the sport could be a success. Even ESPN and USA Today reported on the event, pretty much unheard of for MMA at the time, but by 2004 the boat that had been kept afloat was once again sinking and Zufa reported 34 million dollars in losses since they purchased the UFC. So they threw a Hail Mary at Spike TV following the success of American Casino, a reality show they'd been featured on, and pitched the idea of The Ultimate Fighter, a reality show with MMA fighters living together in a house competing in challenges and eventually fighting until one remained who would be crowned The Ultimate Fighter and receive a UFC contract. The show did better than anyone could have imagined, bringing the sport to a whole new audience and during the finale, Stefan Bonner and Forrest Griffin put on a war that had fans tuning in live in awe of this new beautiful and violent sport. They kept pushing the Ultimate Fighter, building stars, putting on pay-per-views, Chuck Liddell became an icon demolishing people in displays of extreme violence, Randy Couture became an American hero with his unbelievable feats of badassery, Brock Lesnar came over from the WWE bringing a whole new audience with him and eventually stars like Ronda and Connor elevated the sport to a whole new level. And that's pretty much where we are today, only 30 years into the UFC but the sport could not look more different from its origins. But at the end of the day, it's still fighting, we're still all human and we will never not want to watch two people just go at it. I just want to give a big, big shout out to the official fuel of MMA on point, Jocko Fuel. The boys are back to offer you 10% off their pre-workout. It's got healthy levels of caffeine paired with theanine to support a balanced stimulant experience and citrulline and theobromine, which helps promote sustainable muscle pump and stamina. So get your 10% off using the code MMA on point, And with your subscription, you can get free shipping and you can stock up on your fuel at originmain.com slash Jocko Fuel for the ultimate boost and go on living your best life and kicking some ass. Big shout out and thank you to Max Randall for editing this video you can follow him on twitter at max underscore randall shout out to ben rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video his music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere there is a link in the description and follow him at ben rosette on instagram and on twitter Thank you very much for watching everyone today. Please go ahead and like and subscribe if you did enjoy the content. We upload at least three videos every week for your viewing pleasure. Go ahead and leave a comment below if you want to join in the discussion and follow us on Twitter at MMA on Point and myself at Balian underscore plays. You can now jump in and join the community discord as well if you want to continue the discussion further and I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. I'll see you in the next one.